0: One lesson, so many stories. I'm aware that I abbreviate some stories in an attempt to tell a different story that's less painful. Incorporating pieces of an abbreviated story helps me feel like what I'm saying comes from multiple experiences, which it does. But some of those abbreviated stories should probably get told too. This is one of those. Some of the most significant experiences are also the most painful, and so telling them makes them vivid again. And vivid isn't always comfortable, especially when you have done well to move on. For me, the telling of a vivid, significant story is mostly painful in the remembering of what the old me felt, and I feel empathy for that version of me dealing with that thing. It was just a couple years ago that I got referred to as a storyteller. And immediately I was offended, like it was a scratch to my skin. But I let it sink in for a few days and realized that in my desire to help bring self awareness to others as a means of hurting less in life, I need story. I need the ability to convey an experience clearly. And storytelling is the medium I use to do that. So on one hand, no, I'm not a storyteller. But on the other, storytelling is a tool I constantly use. Every January since 2012, something big happens in my life. These events are never big and good. Maybe ultimately good in terms of learning a lesson, but at face value, big and crappy. Mid January 2012, I went to Salt Lake City to spend time with one of my favorite people. We met in a coffee shop with comfortable seating so we could spend as much time sitting, talking, and drinking as we liked. That day turned out to be one of the most pivotal days in my life, and I really have only small memories of the day outside of my mind being blown away by what my friend told me. To tell you what that was, I have to first tell you who she is, and what I told her. At this point in time, I had known her for approximately eight years. She was the girlfriend of one of my sisters and the most self-aware person I've ever known. To say she is my spirit animal, my guru, my muse, my idol, all rolled into one, would be the best way to describe her. I only know one person in the world that might be smarter than her. Interestingly, both of my smartest people were severely abused as children. One of them ended up with post-traumatic stress disorder and the other disassociative identity disorder on a severe level. I say that because of the toll it has taken and the remarkable comeback from it to integrate into only five personalities. Both of these people I met as adults And although my childhood was also a very stressful and abusive time, my experiences are far less severe. I think this is why I find them so easy to understand. It's kind of like I can see clearly how they feel based on my level of trauma, and that I don't have to understand or know the severity of theirs. And frankly, I couldn't. Since my empathy is the size of mountains, I don't have to know their details any better than I do. I'm not going to tell you which of these friends I was having coffee with that day in 2012 out of respect for the anonymity of these two incredibly special people. I'm also going to rename the coffee shop friend CC. This feels respectful. And in a world with so little respect and such a huge need to give respect, CC has every ounce of respect I can physically muster. So does the other friend who I will name VA, just out of the need to distinguish the two by more than their diagnoses of PTSD and DID. What I told CC that day was that I was falling apart. I had been losing my grasp on happiness for quite some time, and my life married to an alcoholic felt like I was being forced to shrivel up into something tiny and painful. My life felt pointless, and the monotony I'd been fighting in the alcoholism for 12 years was wearing me out. I told Cece that at the end of November one night, I remember it being the 27th, that my husband sat down with me just before bed and told me that evening, when he was standing in the driveway having a cigarette and waiting for me to come home from work, that he was aware it was our both being home for the day. That triggered the time he could start drinking. And finally, on that night in the driveway, he realized that he didn't get to decide whether he drank or not. In the 12 years I had known him, I could count on one hand how many times I had seen him cry. And sitting there in the dark, he admitted that he knew, if he didn't change, that he would lose me. Because, you see, I had been asking, begging, shouting, and counting beers for twelve years. He sat on the corner of the bed crying, and I stood near him, not crying. Yet, I was in shock. Yes, I literally was shocked that after all this time he was seeing what I had been saying, but my shock was mostly the realization in his admission that for me it was too late. I didn't know it was too late until he said, what I had been saying since our second year together. I remember the time we were in our flat and I wanted so bad to be held by my husband, but instead I had this drunk guy that was the cause of my upset. I was held by the right body, but not the right person. He started breaking my heart clear back then, and when he finally said he could see he would lose me on the corner of that bed, my years of upset by him was finally a window into myself and the realization I'm already gone because I'm already broken. All I could think was, it's too late, even if you never have another drink, it's too late. I don't remember saying anything out loud to him that night. My thoughts were always in my head and only mine. What happened was eventually I had to stop repeating myself because it only made me angrier. After that, he went to bed and I went to my office and cried so hard I thought I would explode. I think it was around 3 a.m. when I went to bed, not because I was tired, but because staying up longer to cry would only hurt me more the following day if I got a headache. Then all of December was a struggle for me because I had finally admitted so many things to myself about my marriage simply because of his finally being honest. So my lack of respect and my messed up love for him had us fighting most of the month. (laughs) Actually, that fighting might have mostly been in my mind, because I had become an expert at shouting at him only in my head. Saying the meanest things, feeling the hugest poor me, and disrespecting him so much only internally. This had become my habit. Say nothing because the only thing I want to say I've already said. A million times over the years. He's probably the reason I have such an upsetting emotional reaction now to being forced to repeat myself. In the days after that, he said he wasn't going to stop drinking. He was just going to drink less. Drink less was what I'd been asking for for 12 years. So all he was doing was stomping on my already shriveled hope, confirming I had nothing to feel happy about. His new admission equated to nothing for me but greater unhappiness. In the coffee shop with C., after listening to me, she looked at me and said with the most tender tone she could, You understand you're an enabler, right? My mind shot to the videos I watched in high school health class about alcoholism and the word enabling attached to people who help the alcoholic drink alcohol, and I was not doing that. I was complaining the whole way, and I told her this. I was asking nonstop for the 13 beers a night to be less, and Cece turned to me and said, that's not what enabling is. Then the next half hour's conversation started with, do you remember the time when we were there and he said this and you did this? And then she used examples that involved my dad instead of my husband. And when she was done, I finally understood what an enabler was, and that I clearly was one. Among the many things she explained to me with so much tenderness was that I was always trying to make sure everyone was okay, despite the situation. If the elephant in the room was pushing on anyone or everyone, I was doing and saying whatever I could to make them comfortable so that they didn't notice the elephant being so intense. The enabling... Is the desire and attempt to not change anyone, but to make up for the discomfort by saying whatever I could to distract back to comfortable. It's really allowing status quo to remain status quo because the enabler is too uncomfortable to do more than mollycoddle people into believing things are fine. All the while telling themselves, things are fine. We are fine. You are fine. Look how fine we are. And in that, nothing changes. One way to put it for my situation is to say, I never had it in me to stand up and say, shut the fuck up. You're done. This is going to stop right now. You don't get to treat me like this. And if a child could never say any of these things to her father, how could she say them to her alcoholic husband? It didn't even enter my mind to say anything like this. I was conditioned from childhood to try and create comfort from discomfort. Not that I did this from a successful track record, but I did it out of childhood ignorance and excessive empathy for everyone to be okay. It was this blowing of my mind that made this day, as I said, one of the most pivotal of my life. I left that coffee shop a different person than the one that walked in, Because Cece opened a door I didn't know was there, and then walked through it with me. We left the ignorant me behind. When you learn something new, doesn't matter what it is, you can't unknow it. I've referred to this experience in stories I've told before as, walking out of that coffee shop was having fallen off a cliff. Yes, it hurt like hell but I had no choice to do anything but stand up and brush myself off at the bottom. Although painful was the fall, being up on the cliff was worse. I won't lie and say the less pain was immediate. Just as the breaking of bones from the fall would affect you, so was I especially broken for the next two months until I decided I wanted a divorce. And if only the pain stopped there. That conversation started with, I have to tell you something, and it isn't because I don't love you. It's because I can't do this anymore. Our days from there just sound like a roller coaster of good and bad until he left our house for the last time, and I fell to the floor and cried for weeks. I wish the weak enabler in me somehow knew how to be strong and heal as easily as she knew how to be weak and enabling. <laughs> That's clearly one of those lessons that had to be learned the hard way that I now protect with all the strength and attitude 10 years provides. If January is the month of pain, March is the month of markers. This March marks the 10th year anniversary of that painful sentence that included, I can't do this anymore. I look back at the naive enabler created over a lifetime and the strong woman created in a decade since. And I wish I could make the knowledge of now change the past of that me. Because, man, I wish I had less pain in my history. I had no clue that I was effectually enabling my own unhappy life by being an enabler. And now I see the life of an enabler as one of an Inability to see clearly, to realize solutions, to affect change, to be in charge. Actually, that too is why I am now so adamant about the fact nobody is in charge of my life but me. It's why I give the advice to friends you own you, nobody else. If you are uncomfortable, choose differently. Stand tall and say, Not today, not anymore. Yeah, it's fucking hard when you've never done this. But once you start doing it, it's the easy way and the only way. Nobody is living your life. You are. So live it. Choose what happens in it. Choose who gets to be invited to it. Babysit no one. And do the reverse too. Allow others to make themselves look bad. Allow them to choose poorly. Allow them to tell the world who they are. Let them destroy their friendships, their relationships, their life, if that's what they have set their sights on. Because you don't live their life either. These sound like simple statements to the non-enabler, I'm sure. But these are at the core of the problem for the enabler, because we don't think these sentences... Since we are so stuck in the need for comfort, it's kind of like the enabler can't see the piano falling from the sky above them because they're sitting on the ground, fascinated that they just found a piano key at their feet. The enabler isn't looking around at the big picture because they're obsessed with the discomfort and trying to turn it into comfort. My theory is that the discomfort of my childhood made me obsessive about comfort. This is why I fixated on facial expressions, voice intonation, reading the room, feeling the ether, and gleaning anything I can to know what I'm doing and how I can make people more comfortable. If you know me well, you have seen it's an obsession of mine even now that I no longer do out of enabling. I am now able to ignore and allow while using genuineness and friendliness and intonation to be my tools of providing comfort. Will I always be an enabler? My theory is I can't erase it, but I can be aware of it. I can choose to look up and see the piano and ignore the piano key landing at my feet so that I can step out of the way. I'm not in control of the sky-dropping pianos or the pushy elephants of the world but I am in control of whether or not I see them and move. If there were any way I could say I have found how to feel powerful in my life, an actual sense of power, it's in the realization I don't have to enable, and I'm in charge of how I respond. Being in charge of me and what I do, and not worrying about the discomfort makers, truly that's power.